0: Hi, I'm Dalton. And I'm Grace. Welcome to another episode of Fly on the Wall. This week, we had the opportunity to chat with former Congressman Charles DeJoux.
1: Congressman DeJoux represented Hawaii's first district in the United States House of Representatives and served as a state representative and city council member in Honolulu. In addition to being a Lieutenant Colonel JAG officer providing legal services in the U.S. Army. Let's get into it. Congressman DeJoux, thank you so much for joining us this week. My pleasure, my pleasure, delighted to So our first question on your background is just you've been in so many different positions of public service (laughs) in your professional life. What initially drew you into public service?
2: You know, um, my first political experience, uh, I was in high school, actually, and it was a high school social studies class. And one of the requirements of my that my high school social studies teacher uh, made me do all the students do was spend a few hours volunteering uh, on a political campaign. So I was a junior, I, I think, in high school. Uh, I went out and I volunteered for a woman named Patricia Psyche. Uh, she was running for the US House of Representatives. Uh, she was a, a local state senator at the time. I liked her, I liked what she stood for, and I, I, I um, got involved in her campaign. And that sort of snowballed. So uh, she won uh, her election to the House of Representatives. She won re-election. Uh, later on, uh, she ran for the United States Senate, unfortunately losing. She also then later on subsequently ran for, for the governorship of the state of Hawaii. Uh, I was involved in all of those uh, election campaigns, uh, kind of sort of got my juices flowing. Later on in life, uh, after I practiced law for a few years, I ran for, got elected to the legislature. And then, I mean, one of the, my biggest honors and 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 compelling things is 25 years after I was a high school volunteer, for Patricia Psyche running for Hawaii's first congressional district. Uh, I became the congressman from Hawaii's first congressional district. So I, I became the very congressman from the seat for which I had volunteered for as a teenager. So for me, that's been a, a really neat experience.
0: That's really incredible. Um, so you've obviously had a diverse array of these public service roles from local politics mm-hmm. to the military to Congress. Have you found there to be any consistent lessons throughout this time?
2: Um. Yeah, um, I, I mean, for one thing, um, I would definitely say uh, leadership is 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 a quality that it, it it crosses all levels of public office, crosses anything that you're doing. Now, this word leadership is really vague and broad, so maybe let me be a little bit more specific. And that is having a clear idea of not only what you want to do, but how to get there and how to get people around you. To make sure they're all rowing in the same direction. Um, I, I think, especially in politics, it, you see a lot of politicians. It's really easy for them to just say what they want to do, but they fail to communicate how to do it and what the steps are to to, to get there and actually achieve the objectives which you which you want. Um, now, obviously, there's a lot of differences between the military, the the city politics, state politics, and federal politics, and I can happy to get the nuances on that. But that's certainly something that, that, that goes across all, all disciplines.
1: Yeah, that kind of rolls us into our next question. <laughs> Tell us specifically about your time in Afghanistan. Like, what was daily life uh, like? Like, what did you learn? Kind of what was that experience like uniquely? Um,
2: okay, so I, um, I, I, I served in Afghanistan 2011-2012.
1: Uh, I was in
2: uh, Kandahar province. Uh, I served with 3rd Brigade Combat Team, 10th Mountain Division, Mountain Infantry Division. Uh, specifically what I did was, uh, as a JAG officer, I was assigned for, to take charge of something called detainee operations, which is just a nice way of saying I was in charge of enemy POW operations. Um, so what the army had me do was, well, let me back up here a little bit, uh, in history, in American history. When we pick up enemy POWs, historically, it was pretty easy. I mean, in the Second World War, if you wore a German uniform or you wore a Japanese uniform, you were a POW and we shoved you in the POW camp. If you weren't wearing a German or Japanese uniform, we let you go. Uh, In Afghanistan, same in Iraq, the battlefield is much more complex. The enemy is not wearing uniforms. And frequently, it wasn't exactly 100% clear, was this person really an enemy Taliban, and therefore we should put them in a POW camp? Or were they just the farmer in the wrong place at the wrong time, and therefore we should let them go? Um, So what the Army had me do was they assigned me um, to a, a brigade combat team, and I was the JAG for the brigade combat team. And my job specifically was to sort out when the infantry picked up, uh afghan nationals uh review the evidence review what the soldiers were saying review with the circumstances of the pickup and then make the decision is it more likely than not this person was enemy taliban send them to the pow camp or was he more likely than not just a, a, a civilian in the wrong place therefore let him go uh, that was that was my decision it, and you know it it, it it was certainly not as easy um at all uh, i mean there were a lot of things that were very tough calls uh, if, if you have a moment let me just is, is give you a, a very very small snippet or a very very small example um i remember one of my my first months uh on 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 battlefield in, in in afghanistan i had some soldiers come in and pick up a young man uh i would have estimated him 20 21 years old somewhere somewhere that that, that time frame um, and I remember the soldiers telling me, hey, look, sir, this guy looks funny. I'm like, OK, look, <laughs> just because the guy looks funny, you know, you can not put him in a POW camp. But they explained to me that, well, look, when they did a search and they found a number of things uh, in his pockets, they, they found uh, electric duct tape, they found uh, batteries, they found uh, wiring. Now, that in and of itself in the United States or in the West is not really conducive to saying you know, you're an enemy Taliban. But in Afghanistan, where there's no such thing as a radio shack or you can't just go to Walmart, um, these are not common items, and especially in the particular village where he's picked up, which has no running water, no electricity. Somebody with electrical duct tape wiring uh, a battery, more likely than not, is probably involved in the Taliban, probably somehow, some way involved in construction of an IED and provides explosive device. So I mean that was an example of a of a case that I had to deal with and figure out oh gosh, do I, uh, do I shove this guy in the in the POW camp? Or you know, do I, do we let him go?
1: That's super interesting. To take a slightly different spin on your time in the military, were there any ways that your your military experience actually changed your political beliefs at all, or, or maybe helped form them in some way?
2: Yeah. Um I I I think so. I mean a couple of things. Um one, um, I, okay, so the federal budget. Um, <laughs> some people have, have joked, but unfortunately, only half joke that really the United States government uh, and the federal budget really effectively is a pension plan with a defense budget. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's all that the defense, that's really the federal budget today because over 50% of the spending of the federal government is on Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. And the other 50% discretionary spending, over half of it is the defense budget. With that said here, on, on, on the plus side, I, I do think that with a background in the military, I could grasp and understand um, a lot of the aspects about the, the defense budget that I think some of my colleagues in Congress didn't quite understand, didn't quite grasp and understand why things were necessary. Conversely, I will also say that my background in the military um, gave me more confidence and the, to to throw the BS flag, I guess, so to speak, when defense officials come in and say, hey, look, I need a billion dollars for this or, or, you know, I need 10 billion dollars for something else. Um, you know, w- the members of Congress of mine who didn't have any background in the military, I think we're like, well, you know, some general, some admiral says he really, really needs this. Yeah, well, what the heck? Give the guy 10 billion dollars. I'm like, well, wait a second here. <laughs> I don't know if you really need that. Uh, we can we can maybe save a little bit of money here uh, on, on, on that.
0: That's really interesting. Um, and you've been really open about being a career Republican who voted for Biden. <laughs> How would you describe your political affiliation in today's landscape?
2: You know, ah, gosh, that's hard. <laughs> so, um, as, you, as you begin highlighting here, I, I spent most of my career um, as a Republican. Certainly, I, I have been identified. Um, is probably the leading Republican in the state of Hawaii. Now, of course, that's not saying much given Hawaii's political environment. Um, You know, if I were to to, to describe myself, I I personally would ideologically call myself uh, uh, a Jack Kemp conservative. Um, What I mean by that is, is I think my philosophy um, that I have advocated throughout my career in politics has been one in favor of limited government, one in favor of a strong national defense, in favor of an internationalist foreign policy, but also very strongly in favor of a compassionate government, um, that I believe there are people in society who are not as privileged and don't come to our society with the same benefits as as others are. And I think the government does have a obligation to help all members of of our society. that sort of philosophy, I think, used to be the mainstream philosophy of the Republican Party. I mean, certainly I was very proud to have served as a state campaign chairman for Mitt Romney in 2012. Um, over the last several years, the Republican Party's philosophy has shifted from that. Um, what used to be, I think, the center of the Republican Party now is on the fringes. Um, I have not been faithfully disposed to a lot of president former president trump's antics um i think his character can use a little bit of work it is certainly not something i share in terms of his personal background uh, and as a consequence of that um i, I endorsed uh, joe biden i was one of i think there was 25 of us um former republican members of congress who endorsed um, Joe Biden in this, this this last election. So yeah, it's, I, I admit I'm a bit of an outlier. Uh, just to give you um, uh, a converse, I, as I understand it, while there were 25 former Republican members of Congress to endorse Joe Biden, there was only one, only one Democrat who former, former member of Congress to endorse uh, Donald Trump. And I'll show it, show it to you guys since you're at Georgetown University Politics. Do you guys know who that one was? From New Jersey. um. No, he's in Illinois. The the one and only Democrat, former Democrat member of Congress George Joe Biden was Rod Blagojevich, uh, who later, of course, became governor of Illinois and tried to sell Barack Obama's seat.
0: So you've mentioned this philosophical shift in some of these core conservative principles. What would the GOP need to do to win your support back? Or is there even a path back into the party for a lot of Republicans who voted for
2: Biden? I, I think two really big things. First, um, it's character. Uh, I I I do believe character counts. Um, you know, the older I get, the more I stayed in politics. While I do believe ideology is important and policies are important, who actually leads you and the character of your individual, whether at your core, you're, I mean, nobody's perfect. But as a broad general statement, you're an honest and sincere individual trying to do the right thing and do the best job for your community, not for yourself, um, is an important value and characteristics. And I'm, I've am just been exceptionally troubled by a lot of the behavior by President Trump. So I think the first thing that the Republican Party needs to correct to win me back um, is reestablish that. Um, you know, in in, in in 2008, I also was a very big supporter of, of John McCain, um, and I, I use that as a, as a good illustration. Certainly, Senator McCain, as a very young man, um, he openly admits he engaged a lot of antics. He, he openly admits he he drank too much. He womanized. Uh, he was a rabble-rousing uh, United States naval aviator. Um, but as he matured, I think by the time he's in the Senate, certainly by the time he ran for the presidency in 2008, He had a core level of character, a belief in our country, a belief that the country has got to come first and that his personal interests must be subordinate to the interests of the United States. I don't get that sense with Donald Trump. So that's the first thing I think that needs to get corrected. Second, uh, I'm just exceptionally troubled uh, with some of the policies, not all, but some of the policies of President Trump, particularly in the areas of of international affairs and and national security. You know, uh, I thought uh, for for all of my life until Donald Trump, um, that an internationalist foreign policy and a strong national defense were the core of the Republican Party's identity. But President Trump has brought the Republican Party away from that and pushed it towards a much more isolationist um, foreign policy, uh, spoken very disparagingly, I think, of a lot of American allies. Um, I believe the future of our nation is not that it's America and only America. It's yes, America is the largest economy in the world. Yes, we have the strongest military in the world, but it doesn't mean America alone. It means America together with our Western allies and doing things like disparaging uh, our allies in NATO, uh, talking down uh, uh, to our, our allies in Latin America are very troubling. Um, and I, I think over the long term, if we go down that path, we'll jeopardize the security of the of, of our nation. I mean, I think as we saw in the 1920s, when America turned to isolationism uh, and didn't want to be engaged in the world and in global affairs, uh, what ended up was the rise of fascism. Now, now, keep in mind, I'm not calling Donald Trump a fascist and I'm not, not calling the modern Republican Party fascist, but I do think it's dangerous. Um, and that's certainly
1: not something I agree with. So to ask a bit of a harder question about that, how do you like wrestle with and kind of justify the massive support that Donald Trump has among a lot of the Republican party base, especially the working class kind of really downtrodden and and lower income? I think the communities Mm -hmm. that you were referencing earlier, the kind of compassionate conservatism sought to, you know, support and kind of provide and recognize that they did need some help. Mm -hmm. And that group is, you know, in a lot of ways, big fans of Donald Trump. How do you justify that kind of Discrepancy with your own beliefs and wanting to serve these people, but not wanting them to be, you know, to be near fascist or whatever you yeah. you might think they are, going a little bit off the rails.
2: You know, let me give Donald Trump credit for identifying and tapping into a very legitimate reservoir of concern in our nation. I recognize uh, Donald Trump certainly has very successfully exploited that, even as America grows, even though our economy gets bigger every year. The fruits of our economy have not been evenly distributed. And there's a big working class sector of America that feels left out and left behind. Uh, That is a a legitimate concern. Um, And Trump has correctly identified uh, uh, this concern. So my problem is not that, that Donald Trump and the new Republican Party has identified the problem. My my issue is their solution uh, isn't gonna solve the problem. Uh, Returning to isolationism, uh, uh, turning away from free trade, um, trying to build a big, gigantic, I I mean, under Trump, uh, the the size of the federal government has exploded, our budget deficits have gone way, way up. Um, That's not the solution. Uh, The solution is is to try and make sure that the benefits of economic growth, the benefits of America engaged in the world is extended to all Americans rather than just the the, the upper crust, rather than, you know, just the graduates of Georgetown University. Uh, that are, are certainly, I think, our nation, our Congress needs to do a much better job of. Uh, but with uh, Trump's style and his, his policies and approach to that not isn't isn't the right way to do it.
1: Yeah, so maybe moving a little bit from Policy to approach here, kind of like you were just mentioning. You know, you yourself won a congressional seat rather unexpectedly. You were a candidate (laughs) in several tight races. How do you, as a sort of, you know, unconventional candidate, or or for really for any candidate, Mm -hmm. both win and lose with grace and kind of dignity? And and how do you approach that challenge?
2: You know, um, talking about my races and talking about where 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 I'm from, um, a few things. One. Uh, one of the really really disappointing uh aspects i think of modern american politics is this hyper partisanship that has really cropped up in america um that people continually are, are increasingly identifying themselves as republicans and only republicans or democrats and only democrats and there's a decreasing amount of of cross-party voting in our nation today and i think that's that is poisoning american politics you know um I, I don't remember the exact statistic, but 30 or 40 years ago, something like out of 435 members of Congress, something uh, something on the order of 180, 200 out of that 435 members of Congress came from cross party. What I mean by that is, is that you had a Republican congressman representing a district that voted for a Democrat or the other way around, a Democrat representing a congressional district that had voted for the Republican nominee for president. So, you know, 200-ish out of 435. I think, if I'm not mistaken, today in 2021, that number has shrunk from 180, 200 down to, I believe, 16. Um, That's not healthy. That means that people are increasingly voting just on the party label and not on the individual, not on what the the person stands for, believes, and advocates. That's dangerous. from my own personal experiences here, I think, you know, when I first started running, I was at the very tail end of that of Americans willing to cross party lines. And that's why I think for me running as a Republican in a very staunchly Democrat state of Hawaii, I was initially able to overcome that barrier. Today in twenty. 21. Unfortunately, I'll be frank. In the state of Hawaii, I just don't see that that happening. But just as conversely, I mean, Dalton, you mentioned to me you're you're from from Missouri. You know, it in the state of Missouri in in the 2000s, it was not uncommon to see Missouri uh, vote for George W. Bush while simultaneously electing Clara McCaskill to the United States Senate. I mean, that was just I mean, that was common. Uh, today, you, you just don't see that anymore. And I think uh, my hope is for our nation we have to dial this back this partisanship is it's it's bad for our democracy it's bad for the long term health of the united states it, it, it under we we as a nation are undermining ourselves with this this hyper partisanship
0: yeah for sure so you also briefly mentioned earlier that there's a really big difference between national level politics state level politics and then mm-hmm. local politics and yeah. you've spent time in all three of them mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about your time in Hawaiian politics? I know many of our listeners are not <laughs> experts on that and kind of some of the meaningful issues you've worked on over the years.
2: Yeah, sure, sure, sure. You know, um, municipal government, state government and federal government. I mean, in some ways, they're they're the same. I mean, you're, it's it's working for people. Uh, and, and that's a commonality that, that doesn't change at whatever level of government that you're in. Um, I will say, though, that the, the, the huge distinction between, especially municipal politics and, and federal politics, is municipal politics is very, very hands on and not that theoretical. Federal politics can be very theor- much more theoretical. Again, let me explain. When you're, so I served on the Honolulu City Council uh, uh, for seven years. Um, when I was on the Honolulu City Council, the issues that you're dealing with are things like, did did the did local, my neighbor's garbage, did they get picked up? Uh, did, did a pothole get filled? Uh, did the stop sign fall down? Uh, did, you know, when somebody flushes the toilet, is the sewer being handled properly? These are very real world concrete things. As a consequence of that, number one in municipal politics, if you don't do it, um people notice. I mean, when somebody asks you to fill in a pothole and it doesn't get filled in, they know right away it didn't get filled in and there's a problem. Um so in some ways that municipal government is much more rewarding in that sense because it's more concrete, you're actually connecting with people. On the other hand, municipal government doesn't gets into a little bit, but not as much into political theory. I mean, you're not getting into big discussions over what's the size of the GDP, what's economic growth rate like, you know, what are US relations with East Asia? It's really about is the government functioning? Is the government working? And I think if any of your your listeners are interested in politics, I mean that's something that I think you yourself need to decide what interests you more. I mean what do you think is a little bit more, more interesting, what connects you better with? I, I mean I'll give you another illustration. When, when 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 I was running for the mayorship of Honolulu, um you know, what I what I describe to people is, you know, on a day to day basis, um, the average individual in the United States, you can go a full day and never interact with your federal government. You can go a full day and never interact with your state government. But it is really difficult to go more than a few hours and not interact with your city government or your municipal government, because I, I mean. When, when when you get up and you use the bathroom, you flush the toilet, that's the city government. You turn the water on and you start brushing your teeth, that water is coming from the city government. You get in your car and you go on the road to get to work, that's the city government. When you come to your stoplight or your stop sign, that very first stoplight, that's the city government. And within, when, you, when, when you throw something in the trash, that's the city government picking it up. So the city governments and, and municipal governments are much, much closer to the people. And it's much more real world, is your government actually working or not?
0: Yeah. So shifting kind of toward like being a citizen and being a voter, to what extent do local politics or municipal politics reflect and impact um, kind of statewide political engagement um, in terms of what people are doing, getting out to vote um, and actually participating in elections?
2: Yeah. You know, uh, that's where government is functioning today in America. It's honestly it's, it's, it's at the local level. Uh, I mean, it, it, if there's if there's an aspect of 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 the United States where the government still works and works in the best interest of the people, it tends to be at your municipal level of government. You know, um, Rahm Emanuel, who, who who was the chief of staff to to President Obama when I was in, in in Congress, and he later on went on to become mayor of of Chicago. He's described it as that America has become a city nation. Um, and what he means by that, and, and for the record here, Rom um, and I didn't always get along. <laughs> so I'm giving I'm about to give him a compliment, even though that like, you know he tried he got successfully got me kicked out of office. But Rom uh, <laughs> um, is right in the sense that 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 the partisanship that corrodes American politics at the federal level and is increasingly seeping into state level government has led to a level of paralysis that our federal government is no longer functional. And increasingly, you're seeing the same thing at the state level of government. What it has resulted in is that for the operation, leadership, and making American, American government, the big term of the word, work and function, it's at the municipal level of government. And that's increasingly where Americans are turning to to get things done. That when Americans see a problem, when Americans want some sort of action from their government, the American democracy is, is functioning at the municipal level. And, and this is interesting because this is, I mean, I think it's an inverse of, I mean, after the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt and, and the New Deal, I think for, for decades, it was the federal government that showed and executed leadership in the United States. But increasingly today, I think it's, it's, it's flipped back where it's municipal governments that really are, are showing leadership in American government.
1: Yeah, so orienting forward a little bit more and kind of projecting to the future, in your opinion, what does the future of partisan politics in Hawaii look like? Do you predict it to shift or remain stable?
2: Uh, Unfortunately, I don't see a shift coming in Hawaii politics, certainly. Uh, And and Hawaii is not unique. Um, What has increasingly happened, and unfortunately, and I I don't like this. I think this is bad. I think this this is something that I want to see change. But uh, the state of Hawaii has become basically a one-party state. Uh, 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 Again, let me give you illustrations and examples. So when I was the minority leader, Republican leader of the Hawaii State House, of the 51 members of the Hawaii State House, uh, 31 were Democrats and 20 were Republicans. So you can see, I mean, clearly the Democrats had a majority, consistently had comfortable majorities, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't overwhelming um, today in 2021, the Hawaii State House has shifted to 47 to 4, 47 to 4. I, I mean the Republicans now in the state of Hawaii don't even can't even get to 10 percent of the state house. The state Senate is even worse. The state Senate now in the state of Hawaii is 24 to one. Uh, there's only one Republican in the entire Hawaii state Senate. Um, but this phenomena, what is going on in the state of Hawaii, um, is happening all across America, uh, that, that America is increasingly self-sorting. America is becoming much, much more partisan. And just as uh, Hawaii has become overwhelmingly Democrat, you see other states becoming overwhelmingly Republican. Uh, I mean, again, I'll give you another illustration. Uh, the state of Wyoming. Um, and again, Wyoming has always been a Republican state. Wyoming has always consistently voted Republican. But it wasn't that long ago that that Wyoming had a Democrat elected governor of the state of Wyoming. And, and similarly, the Wyoming state Senate, I, I think I, I, just a few years ago, was it was something like 21 Republicans and 10 Democrats. So again, Republicans clearly had a majority, but it wasn't overwhelming. On the other hand, Wyoming today, I think only has like two Democrats or three Democrats in their in their state Senate. And it's just shifted. You can't win as a Democrat in Wyoming anymore, period. Uh, just as in Hawaii, you can't win as a Republican anymore. Period, and that is extremely dangerous because a democracy functions when when voters actually have a choice, when the people go to the polls, and the, the the individuals who make the ultimate decision about the direction of your government rests in the hands of the people. That's a functional democracy. When you have one-party states, doesn't matter whether it's Hawaii or it's Wyoming or it's China or it's it's Russia, one-party states. Where the party leadership makes all of the decisions, and the party leadership gets to dictate the priorities of the government, and the voters don't kick those individuals out, and there isn't this this turnover, uh, there isn't this competition of ideas, that's when government sclerosis steps in uh, and and I th- and then corrodes the the government like a cancer from the inside. That is something that is extremely troubling to me. Um, I want to see it changed. Sadly, with the Republican Party under the leadership of Trump, I don't see that happening in my home state of Hawaii. Um, I'm extremely concerned. I see the similar um, trend happening in the Democratic Party while uh, Joe Biden did get elected president and I did endorse him. The heat, the energy, the enthusiasm of the Democratic Party today, their heart is not Joe Biden the heart of the democratic party today is the squad it's AOC it's Bernie Sanders. Um, and I'm very troubled that within the next 10 years, you can see this huge cleft between these two parties and we're not going to get things done in American politics. Um, I mean, if I had my druthers, uh, uh, I mean, if I were the, you know, if I were God and I can, can can conscript politics any which way I want, um, you know, I I, 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 I think um, I'd love to see a situation as what happened in France in, in I think it was 2017, 2016, when Emmanuel Macron came in and disrupted the cozy two-party system of France uh, between the socialist and the nationalist parties. Um, that was healthy. I think that was good uh, for the French Republic. Um, while I'm not very optimistic on the, the near term, I'm cautiously optimistic on the long-term. One of my favorite quotes uh, is from from Winston Churchill. Uh, Winston Churchill once said that you can always count on the Americans uh, to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. Um, I think maybe we have to go down this partisan path for for a few years, but I I have long-term confidence in our, our American people that eventually we're gonna right this ship. But I think it's gonna be a little bit of a choppy, rocky road for the next few years.
0: And kind of along that note, and, and leaning into that theme, you've expressed a commitment to civility throughout your career. Mm-hmm. What will it take for America as a whole, um, whether people in your position, leaders currently, or even students who are listening to this podcast? How do we as a whole return to a place where we can constructively engage in politics?
2: Yeah, y- you know, Grace, um, that's really important. Absolutely important. And the way to engage that civility is you got to talk to people. People have to talk to people. Humans, this isn't a Republican or Democrat thing. Humans are social animals. Humans are meant to talk, interact, and be with other people. The problem with the 21st century today, um, and I'm sure your parents uh, probably criticized you about this, is there's too much technology. Um, That is, I mean, the advent of social media, uh, the advent of the internet, I think are good things. They have led to a lot of progress. They have helped and boosted America's economic growth rate. But it's not all peaches and cream. The advent of the modern information technology environment um, has also caused social disruption, which has also led to some of this bitter partisanship in our nation. That is, Americans are increasingly only talking to other Americans who are exactly like them. You're not getting people from uh, rural Missouri regularly interacting with people from urban Atlanta, um, except maybe at Georgetown, I don't know. but but uh, uh, that, that's bad. That That's not healthy for a democracy. If you want a democracy to function, a democracy needs people from all walks of life, from all parts of the country to interact and talk with one another. And so, so again, let me give you an illustration. Uh, this is just a small step as an example of how things are increasingly going awry in the modern 21st century America. You know, when I was in high school, I'm dating myself here now. So when I was in high school, the common medium of, of communication amongst individuals in a community was the newspaper. Okay. So if you were interested in current events, you read the newspaper, but also it, let's just say hypothetically, whatever you, you were interested in sports and you wanted to find out the latest basketball scores. Where did you go? You went to your local newspaper. Uh, let's say you were, uh, uh, you're into movies. You want to find out what the next movies are, what time movies are playing. You went to the local newspaper. Uh, you, were, you were into food. You wanted to find out where the new restaurants are that opened up in town. You went to the local newspaper. And what happened was, it, it, is that even though people didn't necessarily, that, 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 that sports fanatic, that movie enthusiast, that foodie might not always re- interact with the, the current events uh, uh, person, they kind of sort of interacted over that local community newspaper. At a very, very bare, 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 bare minimum they all at least read the headline on the front page of the newspaper. Maybe they didn't read the article, but at least they read the headline on the newspaper. Today in 2021, that doesn't happen anymore. What happens is, is that if you're a sports fanatic, you're going to, to ESPN.com or SI.com. If you're a movie critic, you're going to Rotten Tomatoes or Fandango or whatever it is your kids use these days for, for watching movies. If you're a food critic, you're going only to that very, very narrow niche. And then if you're a current events junkie, you're not going to general newspapers. What you're increasingly doing is you're going to very narrow uh, websites that cater to just your interest. So whether it's on the far right or far left. Um, And what's happening here is, is our Americans aren't talking to one another, not seeing one another. Um, And as a consequence, they begin to believe that their niche is what all Americans are like, that their niche is correct and their niche defines reality that, you know, and, and as a consequence, you get things like these weird phenomena like QAnon and, and whatnot here. Um, and people beginning to believe in in strange conspiracy theories like, you know, Hillary Clinton running a pedophile ring in, in some pizzeria in Washington, D.C. Um, we need people to interact with people. Um, th- that's the way it has always been done that's also the solution to all of this here. Now, how you do that, I, I, if I had an answer to how you can actually do that, that'd be true leadership, and I would be running for president in the next election. I don't have a solution for it. I don't. I do. But I—I—I I, 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 at least I'm identifying what I think we need to work on, and we've got to find a way for Americans to interact with other Americans and, and really understand that we are all Americans. We're not... Republican Americans, Democrat Americans, foodie Americans, sports fanatic Americans, we're all Americans We have common interests and common goals.
1: Well, on that optimistic note, we'll, uh, we'll <laughs> take our, our lightning round, uh, our last few questions. Sure. Just quick, quick questions, quick answers. The first one is, what is the most important part of your daily routine?
2: Ah, oh, <laughs> what's the most important part of my daily routine? Oh, geez. Um, Honestly, I'd like to say it's making my bed when I wake up in the morning. <laughs> um, probably I will, I, I will more honestly answer the, the, the thing that I look forward to is, is, is getting my iced coffee from McDonald's. <laughs> That's probably a more honest answer.
0: <laughs> As a resident of Hawaii, we need your definitive take. Does pineapple belong on pizza?
2: No. <laughs> no. <laughs> that for the record, I don't know why, but that's not from my home state.
1: <laughs> Good, answer. Good answer. Last question. Knowing what you know today, what piece of advice would you tell your 18-year-old self? You know, um to keep trying.
2: Um uh uh that I I think when I was 18, uh, I had this grand vision (laughs) that as long as you do the right things, uh, you check all the right blocks, it'll eventually just, it'll happen. Um, What I have found, and if I could go back and and tell my 18-year-old self, is that even if you check all the right blocks, do all the right things, (laughs) execute the way people tell you to execute, things still don't always happen the way you think they're going to happen life is still random light. You can still get, you will find, you get things you didn't deserve, um, never expected. And, and conversely things that you really work hard at and you really, really want, and you did all the right things can still not come together. The only solution uh, to this randomness of life that just happens is you gotta keep on standing up and trying again. If it really is that important to you, keep pounding away and pounding away and pounding away. I mean, that's, that's what I would say.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. It was awesome to talk to you. It's a delight. Thank you for having me.
0: We hope you enjoyed our fantastic conversation with the Congressman as much as we did.
1: Before you go, make sure to follow us on social media at Fly on Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. As always, you can email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com.
0: See you next week.